0: If you want to go find some kind of a precedent for high-end naval and, and air conflict between near rivals or near equals, you've really got to go back to World War II. And if you want to test out modern naval technology, even in more limited or lopsided fights, you've got to go to things like the 1982 Falklands-Malvinas War between the Brits and Argentinians, or some of the conflicts that occurred around the Persian Gulf during the you know, tanker wars and the Iran-Iraq war. And then, uh, you know, that body of knowledge is just not going to be nearly as analogous to a future U.S.-China fight. So here the uncertainty is even more.
1: Can Taiwan take China and how will emerging technologies change the answer to that question? Michael Hanlon is a senior fellow and director of research at Brookings. Mike, thanks for coming on China Talk. Jordan, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So, Mike, let's start off with some scenarios. Um, which were the ones you picked to model and why?
0: Well, the overall answer to the big question, Jordan, is I don't know if China can take Taiwan, and I don't think anybody else does either. I think it's sort of unknowable. And that may seem like an analytical punt, and maybe it is a little bit, because uh, I admit there are parts of this various, well, various scenarios that I don't completely understand at a technological or an operational level. But I actually think that my agnosticism about our uncertainty about who would win is actually a fundamental reality of the situation. And if you think about it, it shouldn't be surprising because, you know, these are two countries that have outstanding militaries with technologies that have never really been tested in combat, especially on the Chinese side. But even on our side, we haven't had to make our you know, integrated command and control networks operate against an adversary that has the ability to disrupt them. When our mutual friend General Stan McChrystal commanded special operations forces or NATO forces in Afghanistan, he didn't have to worry about the Taliban doing cyber attacks that could bring down his networks or jamming his radars or, you know, grounding his aircraft. They they had a lot of other things they could do. But we have never fought a high tech adversary in the modern era of the internet. And I don't think anybody therefore really can predict what would happen. You know, it's yeah. it's the yeah, power and we're sort of never
1: gonna take satellites out of the sky as much as you Yeah, know. right, exactly.
0: And, you know, it's again, it's just to keep belaboring the obvious, but I, it's a point that I think is often forgotten that I mean, I like to make an analogy with sports because sports is a fundamentally competitive human endeavor within very artificial and, you know, circumscribed parameters. Yeah. A certain field, a certain length of time, number of players on the field, the same for both sides, referees that are making sure people adhere to the same rules, more or less. And yet, we could have two teams that know each other, that play each other, play each other in the same year. And one time they could have a lopsided victory for team A, and the other time could be a lopsided victory for team B. And, you know, even though people would have placed bets about who would have won before each game, basically, They didn't know because there is a human element of unpredictability that has to do with, has to do with, you know, what the French call a law or courage or creativity, tactics, cleverness, just getting out of the right side of the bed that day. And all these factors are enough to mean that even a sporting event confined within certain very specific parameters is unpredictable in many cases how much more must that be the situation in war between two countries of roughly comparable capability? Now, yes, the United States is still a much better military than China's overall, but we're not talking about fighting China in a neutral location like Chile or Antarctica. We're talking about fighting them hundred miles off their coast and 8,000 miles off of ours. And so you bring all that together, as well as the uncertainty about how Taiwan would itself perform, how Japan or anybody else that gets involved uh, would participate and how well they would do. And it's it's just unknowable. So that's sort of the philosophical level. And I know your question was getting more specific, but I would just say that starting with the philosophical level, we really shouldn't think that we can predict the outcome of wars between comparably capable countries, especially when they haven't fought each other and haven't tested their
1: technologies in high-end combat in decades. So, um, given that, what's the point of even doing modeling exercises and how much can they tell you? So I began with that philosophical
0: point that I just laid out. Then I said, okay, but that could be a bunch of hand waving by some curly haired Brookings guy. So let me now put my instincts to the test. And see how well I think I can take simple mathematics, simple models of combat. And apply them to this problem, and of course you don't just want to invent this out of whole cloth; you try to use previous conflicts to see which simple tools perhaps could give you insight into how they unfold. In other words, you try to predict history, things that have already happened. see if you can construct models that at least allow you to predict the past, but then try to you know then try to answer the. Uh, Yogi Berra challenge, which is, you know, prediction is hard, especially about the future. If you have a model that can predict things where we know the outcomes in the past, maybe you can then apply these same models to hypothetical cases that might or might not occur in the future. So that's the whole concept. But we haven't really had a lot of naval combat or high-end air combat in the modern era. So the models aren't that great. And the data is a little bit outdated because the unclassified data you can access is based on the Falklands War of 1982 or you know the Hanker Wars in the Persian Gulf in the late 1980s or uh, what you get from unclassified reports of missile tests that we do out at test ranges. And you've got to try to bring all that together and see if you can concoct a simulation or a model that then applies to uh, a US-China fight whether it's China trying to invade Taiwan, to answer your first question, scenario one would be an amphibious assault, trying to seize the island by force. Scenario two would be some kind of a blockade that tries to squeeze Taiwan into submission by essentially strangling its economy. Those are the two main categories of scenarios that I think about when I think about China, Taiwan. And what you can try to do, and I'll be brief on this last point for now and look forward to your next reaction or question. What you try to do is you say, okay, Can I, even if I can't really get all the best data and maybe the best data doesn't even exist because none of the tests that we've done have been completely realistic, even the classified tests can't really be fully insightful. But what I can do is try to establish an optimistic and a pessimistic case to bound the problem from an American point of view. Let's say we, most of the questions about missile defense and about survivability of command and control and other major ingredients or raw materials into this fight, let's say most of them break the American Taiwan way. And based on what we know about these weapons and systems, let's just go ahead and then do the math, follow that through and see who we think wins. And then let's make a similarly pessimistic set of assumptions from our point of view and see who wins. And what I try to argue in this long paper I did over the summer is that with Plausibly optimistic assumptions about American weapons performance and military performance overall. We do in fact defeat China in its effort to squeeze Taiwan through a blockade into submission. And however, if the assumptions are plausibly pessimistic, and again, you know, using what real world data we do have from unclassified tests from previous battles, then I think China wins and These findings are fairly robust. In other words, it's not a close call in either case. And I'm not trying to deliberately exaggerate the optimism or the pessimism. I'm trying to sort of just do a sort of best I can straight estimate of what would be a good day in this kind of a war for us and what would be a bad day. And if I can run through the math for those two bounding sorts of scenarios within a scenario, two sort of variance within a, a single kind of scenario and i can show that the results could be radically different based sort of on who's lucky and and who winds up you know just getting the better results for weapons that have never been fully tested in combat and therefore the performance of which is unknowable to some extent then i, then I can sort of begin to argue that no one really knows who's going to win and it's pretty robust even if china spends 5% 10% 20% more on its military or if we do the same Again, these are not close calls. So I feel like I have, at, at the risk of, uh, of speaking in oxymoronic language, I feel like I have demonstrated that the result is unknowable, yeah, and yeah. therefore both sides should be chastened about any optimism heading into such a fight, and hopefully, therefore, never have the fight
1: at all. So, you know, I, I'm with you through most of that, but I think that I think the key piece at the very end is like the good day, bad day, and sort of bounding that and assigning probabilities to that. Because it's it I think it's a very different sort of geopolitical calculation. If the good day, bad day scenario is like 90 if you roll the dice, it's like if you flip the coin, it's 90% on one side versus it's really a 50-50 call. So in that piece of this logic chain, how were you thinking about that? And you know, how maybe how could that piece of the you know matrix potentially be improved with a i don't know with a book instead of a a, an august paper
0: yeah that's a nice question or with a team of researchers where you put some of the um young smart kids on the job of running multiple iterations and uh and then you sort of you know tabulate how many victories and how many defeats you're right i did not do that and it's probably because I'm a very lazy person who uh, got tired after doing two calculations and didn't want to do 20. But I think you're right that analytically you could try to assess sort of what's the midpoint of the range of plausible outcomes and is that midpoint one that tends to favor China or tends to favor the United States and its allies. And I'm just going to tell you I didn't do that. But what I did do is I to build on the point that it wasn't a close call when I made the assumptions that favored China, it won pretty easily. When I made the assumptions that favored the United States and Taiwan, they won pretty easily, pretty decisively in terms of attrition. So the, you know, again, the model is never going to be a perfect way of understanding reality, but the way in which the model plays out is it allows both sides to just keep fighting until they lose their assets. And so if if we destroy the entire Chinese submarine force and missile force that's being used to target shipping in and out of Taiwan, and we've still got three-fourths of our Navy ships available, then it's a pretty clear win. By contrast, if China can sink essentially our whole fleet and still have submarines to spare, then it's a pretty solid win for them. And so what I'm saying is you're probably right that if you did this parametrically with a lot of cases, you could probably wind up making an argument that you know China wins 65% of the time or the US wins you know, 57% of the time. You could probably make that argument. Uh, I did not try to make that argument. I'm not sure I would really believe that kind of result to be that meaningful, even if I had done all the brute force calculation. Maybe that's just rationalizing away why I didn't bother. But, um, but I think when you try to push these models too far into the realm of precision, uh, you know, you can do it and just sort of get caught up in the math and enjoy the parametric analysis. And if you build a computer code that allows you to just keep monkeying with inputs, obviously you can generate as many outputs as you want very fast and easily. And so it's possible to do that, but you could also get a little bit carried away with the methodology and the computation. And it may start to be, you know, violating the old adage that be careful about running too many computer models, because if it's garbage in, it will still be garbage out. Uh, even if the model itself is beautiful or to put it differently, if the inputs are fundamentally uncertain, you know, you can work through all these different, uh, variants on your calculation, but, you're not necessarily going to be deriving great wisdom from that, even though you might try to argue that, again, China wins 63% of the scenarios. You know, I mean, even if that were true, so what? Does that mean China can confidently think it's going to win any given scenario? Of course not, because you and I know from probability that the very point we're making, if we say China might win, you know, X percent of the time, is it's just a percentage. And any given war, of which there is only going to be one, presumably, at least one at a time, uh, you know, it it still could go either way. And so I don't think either side should feel it has a decisive advantage. And especially because in war, uh, aggressors often feel that they've figured out some secret, clever new war plan based on innovative technology and a concept of attack that really has never been thought of before, never been employed before. So they think they have the big leg up. They delude themselves into Overconfidence. This happens time and time again. It happened with Putin when he invaded Ukraine and thought it would be easy. It happened with us when we invaded Iraq in 2003 and thought it would go fast. It happened in the American Civil War when the Battle of Manassas was basically treated as a picnic by the two sides because they thought it would be sort of a nice shootout for one day and then the war would be over. You know, it's just human nature to get overconfident. And I was trying to attack that with my approach.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right, Mike, in that. Ultimately, that exercise, it only it only is like policy relevant if you're really at like ninety five five, on one side because the the downside risks of running this you know quote unquote experiment are so enormous for Beijing, um, which is something that I'm going to be getting in in a in an upcoming podcast with uh, Jude Blanchett and uh, Gerard Depipot. That um, yeah, it's just. Let's hope it never happens. Another point you made um, about the sort of like fancy modeling versus back of the envelope modeling um, in your paper. I love this example um, from Desert Storm where Rand, you know, did the thing where they had dozens of researchers like do some fancy model. And it turned out that the sort of back of the envelope calculations that just took, you know, previous relatively comparable roars. Um, ended up being far more accurate in, um, you know, how the correlation of forces ended up playing out than. Um, uh,
0: yeah, I'm in- glad you mentioned that. The reason why um, those researchers could do such a good job with the back of the envelope approach in Desert Storm in 1991, or even in 2003, we weren't that far beyond the Arab-Israeli wars, where we had the same geography, same kind of weaponry, more or less. The same kind of disparity in training between, you know, the Israeli forces on the one hand and most of their Arab neighbors who attacked them at various times, or or who were subject to surprise attack in 1967, and and then you could what you could do is take that body of information and experience and modify it somewhat for the fact that the United States had things in 1991 and in 2003 that Israel hadn't even had in 56 67 seventy three things like laser guided bombs in large numbers, GPS guided bombs, the joint stars, surveillance aircraft that could find moving vehicles through radar on an open terrain, and you put all that together combined with our enormous advantages in scale, and we could create sort of a catastrophic effect against the Iraqi army, which was even more dramatic than what Israel had achieved against arab adversaries and so you, in other words, you had a fairly controlled situation because you had a good empirical data set. It was pretty recent and pretty analogous. And then you could modify yeah. it somewhat and debate just how much it should be modified. And even then, we had smart American analysts disagreeing by a factor of five or 10 about what our losses would be. Like you said, people at the Pentagon seem to have gotten it badly wrong, but everybody was operating off of a fairly common foundation that was arguably quite relevant. U.S. China, much different. Is, again, if you want to go find some kind of a precedent for high-end naval and, and air conflict between uh, near rivals or near equals, you really got to go back to World War II. And if you want to test out modern naval technology, even in more limited or lopsided fights, you've got to go to things like the 1982 Falklands-Malvinas War between the Brits and Argentinians, or some of the conflicts that occurred around the Persian Gulf during the, you know, tanker wars and the Iran-Iraq war. And then, uh, you know, that body of knowledge is just not going to be nearly as analogous to a future U.S.-China fight. So here, the uncertainty is even more. So for some people that could say, well, let's not even try to model it. It's just not worth the trouble. There's there's no point. I try to say, what the heck? Let me give it a try. I admit there's big uncertainties. But my whole point here is everybody else should understand there are uncertainties too and not get overconfident i'm so nervous about people and their tendency towards overconfidence in war i'm going to take the gamble of doing a modeling exercise that may seem just sort of fundamentally undoable but that's sort of my point is that you really cannot get too much precision on the outcome when i was at the congressional budget office in 1990 and we were asked by senator sasser the chairman of the senate budget committee um, a democrat from tennessee to estimate what the operation desert storm uh, you know, war might cost, assuming the United States did launch this effort to uh, evict Saddam and his forces from Kuwait, we wound up with our lower bound and our upper bound being about a factor of three apart. So I think we estimated the cost to the United States of prevailing in this war, which we assume they, the United States and its allies would do, to be anywhere from 28 billion to 86 billion in the in the dollars of the day. And it wound up being about 60 billion. So we sort of hit the midpoint, which was good. But we didn't want to try to be any more precise than 28 billion to 86 because of just the unknowables and uncertainties of conflict. But if you tried to model a US China war, I would submit you wouldn't even know who's going to win. And if you were trying to estimate costs, you would probably need to have your lower bound and your upper bound at least a factor of 10 or 20 different from each other. Uh, So. That's just to underscore.
1: I've actually done this exercise and I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, I mean, setting aside the cost of like just like fighting the war and like how much material you're gonna lose or whatever, the 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 global GDP impact of like stopping China trading from the world is enormous and shaves, you know, serious. You know, if 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 Russia, Ukraine, you know, took points of GDP off the planet, like it's 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 pretty horrifying to comprehend what would what would um, um what would happen in this case. Well said. Uh, Mike, let's layer another level of complexity onto projecting uh, a U.S.-China conflict. You know, that is, of course, uh, emerging technology. Um, you know, it, it's one thing to go back 40 uh, years to the uh, Falklands War. Uh, and took it and look at the present. But um, going even further into the future uh, is is a whole nother sort of layer of challenge that um, you in a uh, book, The Senkaku Paradox, which came out in 2019, did a really fun job of uh, trying to explore. Um, so. Uh, Mike wrote a book in 2000 um, where he picked uh, a few dozen emerging technologies and tried to say in 2020 I think uh, you know these are going to hit these are going to be busts and then in 20 um, and then a few years ago you did a sort of sequel to that where you graded yourself on how you how your 2020 how your 2000 predictions did and tried to learn some lessons from that exercise in looking forward another 20 years. On what the technologies that you picked then, as well as a handful of new ones, would end up uh, doing to the sort of high end battle space. So um, it was one of the favorite, my favorite chapters I've read in the past few years. Um, I think it had like physics and intellectual honesty and uh, just a lot of uh, just like some great Googling that it spawned. You know, I didn't even know about railguns that are intercontinental um uh as along along with um a, a lot of other sort of great uh detours that those two chapters picked me on but i do want to sort of um maybe start with what you learned um you know having been at this for a while and looking back at uh you know what yourself 20 years younger did um what were some of the things that you ended up um being right on wrong on and and how did how did you know, being able to to, to run this personal experiment uh, change your mental models of how technological change impacts militaries.
0: Thank you, Jordan. That was very kind and um, appreciate the thoughtful reading of my work over that stretch. And so, uh, and just to clarify, in case anybody's at home worried, they're about to be taken down by somebody's intercontinental railgun, The good news is that Jordan's talking about technology development as opposed to technology deployment. I don't think anybody actually has an intercontinental rail gun right now, which is probably because we really <laughs> wouldn't know very well how to guide the projectile. And what we found is it's actually better to let that projectile be less sophisticated and generally less fast, but to have some kind of homing guidance. And of course, now we're talking about hypersonic missiles, uh, which are you know self-propelled objects. The railgun would just be a dumb piece of metal that's accelerated through a long tube to a preposterous speed. And it's technologically becoming more within reach. That's what you've got. One of my categories of of, of technology that I tried to look at. So Jordan, the basic concept of what I tried to do going back to 2000 in that earlier study is I tried to, well, I, I listened to the debate of the day about defense innovation. And people were getting very excited about things like computers and precision strike weapons and laser-guided bombs and GPS-guided bombs. And they were starting to argue that this revolution of military affairs was in the offing and that maybe war was going to become sort of standoff and antiseptic and autonomous and robotic. And, you know, um, this was even, we weren't talking that much about artificial intelligence back then, but we were talking a lot about cyber. And already the Terminator movie was two decades old by that point. And so anyway, there was a lot of breathlessness. And we had seen amazing things happen in Desert Storm, especially in 1991, that made people think that this was a moment in history where warfare could change radically. And if you didn't get ahead of that change, you were going to be in trouble. And therefore, the United States, even though it was the established superpower and it just done very well in Desert Storm, as well as the Kosovo War. Uh, really needed to probably dismantle a lot of its existing capabilities and just put money into new stuff and new ideas. And you know that's fine, but it's also a little breathless because when you dismantle things, you're giving up real capability and you better be confident that those real capabilities are no longer needed. And you really better be confident that your new visions could actually be achieved because it's one thing to talk about them beautifully or put them on a PowerPoint or in a nice book. It's something else to bring them to the test range and then bring them to scale and incorporate them into modern military units. So I was convinced the whole debate was getting overexcited and that we were going to make some big mistakes by trying to change too fast. And I appreciated that the people who were talking about a revolution of military affairs, they wanted to shake up the system and make sure the services didn't just keep buying incrementally better versions of the same kind of weapons they preferred to operate, you know, fighter jets for the air force, et cetera. So there was good motivation behind a lot of the desire to shake up the debate, but it ran the risk of of pushing us too far. For example, some of the things that I was hearing people say back then that I really thought were wrong instinctively uh, would, would be things like the oceans are going to become transparent to new kinds of sensors. I remember from graduate physics that electromagnetic radiation of any type does not penetrate seawater more than a few meters or at most a few Dozen meters, maybe down, maybe 150 to 200 meters for blue and green. When we go snorkeling in the Caribbean with our families, but uh, you know, uh, basically that's the value you're going to get out of the oceans, except through sound waves, sonar. And we already had that deployed, so it wasn't clear what was still to be done. Another idea: the army wanted to build these tanks that were going to weigh only one fourth of what uh, tanks of the current generation, you know, the M1, which we still have. Uh, and, and they were going to somehow have this, what I call the Muhammad Ali version of armor, which is a uh, be so light that you sort of fly like a butterfly, sting like a bee, and see the enemy shooting at you before the enemy gets a shot off. So you can dodge it or intercept it, you know, have a tiny little anti-rocket rocket. You can aim at the incoming weapon. And all this sounded great. And uh, they were going to also build these internal combustion engines that were 10 times more efficient and start having land vehicles drive 125 miles per hour on rugged terrain by the year 2010 and just all this talk. And so what I said is, this sounds wrong. And I went back to my college physics because that was my major in college to be pretty confident some of the allegations or presumptions or claims were incorrect. Then I said, how can I analytically attack this in a more systematic way? And, and that's when I came up with, like you said, you know, 35 areas of technology. And for each one, I tried to either apply core principles of physics or uh, a knowledge of the existing engineering literature to project what I thought was going to be realistic to achieve uh, within the next one to two decades. Let me just say one more thing, big ships, big ships that go through the sea. What I was really struck by as I started to just ponder very simple fact that our big ships in the Navy today typically go about 35 knots. And I kept reading this World War II history and I was reading about all these ships going 28 and 30 knots. I'm like, wow, we've had 70 years, 60 years to get better. And basically the ships fly the same or sail the same speed. Same thing with most aircraft. Yes, it's true that our highest performance aircraft can keep getting faster. But because of the efficiencies and inefficiencies of hydrodynamics through the atmosphere, you tend to want to fly an airplane at around 500 miles an hour. You don't tend to want to fly it a lot faster. And we haven't really come up with a big idea or a different design for an airplane that would change that. And with the internal combustion engine, yeah, they keep getting better. 1% here, 2% there. You know, The machining gets even more precise. The, the way in which the fuel is turned into an aerosol, even more precise. These are incremental changes in a technology that's pretty mature. So the more I looked at a lot of technologies like that, I started to see either that the laws of physics would get in the way of big breakthroughs, making them either impossible or requiring a whole different concept because the oceans, for example, were not going to become transparent. Or I found that technology was really you know, impressive but it had been impressive in that area for quite a while. And it was really just, uh, improving slowly or maybe even improving moderately fast, but not in transformative and revolutionary ways. And so I wound up concluding that for the most part, I was a skeptic on the revolution in military affairs hypothesis, because I did not necessarily see this sort of sweeping, uh, you know, potential for breakthrough across all these different tech sectors. Yes, there was potential in, um, in computers, may we come back to that and also in a couple other areas, maybe biological weapons, maybe certain kinds of directed energy. And so there certainly is the potential for a revolution driven by those specific areas of technology, but the system as a whole, the ecosystem as a whole was not changing all that incredibly fast.
1: Yeah. So, um, um uh, before we get back to sort of computing revolution and, and AI's potential impact, um, the other sort of limiting factor, aside from the physics, which makes these developments both hard to create as well as implement and diffuse is, of course, the bureaucracies that have to, um, you know, deal with them. Uh, you, you say that it's most difficult to predict how multiple technologies might be combined, which makes a ton of sense, as well as how military organizations might respond to new technological opportunities that required multi-step processes to reach their potentials. Um, yep. Any thoughts on that and, and in particular thoughts on sort of forecasting how well bureaucracies can evolve to take advantage of potential technological breakthroughs?
0: Well, it's a good question. One way is competition. And that's why I actually don't mind seeing multiple services sometimes overlapping, military services overlapping in their interests, their portfolios, you know, so with drone technology, for example. The Air Force was investigating and to some extent deploying drones, unmanned aircraft in the 1990s, but didn't really think of these platforms as uh, ways to deliver ordnance. They had had cruise missiles, which are unmanned aircraft in and of themselves, but they really didn't want to start, you know, using Predator or Reaper or Global Hawk or what have you and sticking anti-ship or anti-tank weapons on those platforms or sensors even that would go out and do surveillance, they preferred to do the higher end work, especially the the weapons delivery with manned airplanes. And that was partly a cultural thing. And it was the CIA that decided to start slinging weapons underneath uh, these unmanned aircraft because the CIA needed to get certain very specific things done, especially after 9-11. And also didn't have huge budgets to build a fleet of stealth aircraft to go do it the old fashioned way. So the competition in in this case, not even involving another military service, but another part of the U S government altogether became crucial. And now of course the air force is in the game too, because they can't afford bureaucratically or otherwise to be the second best at anything involving aerial attack. So once it's been demonstrated that there is a way to do this and do it pretty, pretty effectively with uncrewed systems, the air force is going to feel some of the pressure. So that's one way, healthy competition. A- another way is of course, that we need uh, civilian leadership that challenges the services. It's, it's usually not possible for the civilian leadership to completely overrule the military services on a matter that's core to that services culture, but you can challenge. And in fact, it can go both ways because a lot of times good ideas come first and foremost from within the uniformed military. But you want to empower debate because these bureaucracies are fairly old-fashioned in some ways. And people who want to keep doing things the same way, especially once it reflects culture of that organization, becomes almost a key part of their sense of identity and purpose, very hard to challenge. And so the job of of somebody who's looking at it from the outside or coming in as a civilian uh, is, is to empower the iconoclasts, but not let them just carry the day either. Because like I said, I think there were too many iconoclasts in the 1990s who believed that a revolution in military affairs could be sweeping and comprehensive. And a lot of their ideas, I think, were bad. So you really want the debate itself. You can't presuppose that either the traditionalists or the reformers are going to be correct on any given issue. you got to sort of fight it out on the merits of the case. So that's the real job of trying to push these bureaucracies forward. This episode is brought to you by Shopify
1: book mean anything to you i don't know it well no no oh, okay it's the best book you'd really like it fun Christmas. who wrote meeting. it elting morrison right. came out in the 50s it kind of tells the story of bureaucracies fighting with and adapting to military um technological change uh about half of the examples are military there are a number of naval ones um in there and the the piece that struck out to me the most was this culture part of it where you just have a sort of like identity and a training regimen and you put 20 years of your life into this thing. And then all of a sudden, whatever that thing is like, doesn't matter anymore. And it's just obsolete. And it's a waste of time. And it's like this huge net negative relative to this opportunity that you have, um, on the, on the other side of things. And it's really hard sort of personally and organizationally for folks to throw that stuff away. But on the other hand, you know, this book, uh, I was also thinking about like, this book is profiling the Mavericks that were right. Um, and, uh, you know, there are going to be people who think that the, uh, you know, the, the next thing, the next great thing for tanks is for them to, you know, weigh as much as a cyber truck and they're going to be wrong. And you can't just sort of lean into every single one of those people's ideas if you want to have a system that's sort of um, robust and isn't sort of like flittering around like Elon Musk, um, you know, managing Twitter or what have you. So it's a a really tricky, delicate balance um, to make sure that you're making the right bets when it comes to um, when it comes to future technologies, particularly if you're in a If you're if you're you know, if you're not at some private sector firm where worst case you go out of business like worst case here, you know, you you end up getting that 95 five probabilistic outcome of losing a war because you just screwed up so bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mike. Speaking of sort of culture for a second, like which. Types of people or where are people in bureaucracies more biased towards. Believing that they are living in like a moment of rapid technological change, and you know who besides like the fighter pilot who's been training for thirty years to fly a fighter plane and wants to keep flying a fighter plane is you know has the has the inverse reaction when sort of looking at all the data points and trying to think about the future.
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Well, one thing is when it's just too obvious to ignore, like when airplanes were invented. So, uh, yeah, you know there were it, it took a while because. Airplanes, as we know, were invented at the very beginning of the 20th century, and they had a fair amount of use in World War I, but it was primarily, you know, observation and didn't really uh, dramatically change the course of the conflict. Although information is always crucial, and when you can learn what your enemy's up to, that's pretty important. But it wasn't until World War II that airplanes really fully came into their own in modern combat. But all through that period of the early part of the century, uh, you saw a lot of creative thought. And that's also when the Navy really pushed the concept of aircraft carriers. And within the U.S. Navy and also the Japanese Navy, uh, both sides realized that this was a moment when we had to think whether the battleship was still going to be the dominant platform. And so a lot of the innovative thinking about uh, using airplanes, You know, at sea, came from within the services because it was almost too obvious to ignore. That, but it was still a close call because the Brits didn't evolve as fast as we did in the interwar years. Uh, Another example: nuclear weapons. You know, and sometimes you overdo it. So we we invent the bomb. We get ahead of others with the bomb, and we decide let's make the nuclear bomb centerpiece of our entire defense establishment. And Curtis LeMay wants to, you know, consider preventive war against the Soviet Union and. We build these huge bomber fleets and then ICBM forces. So sometimes you also overdo it because the sexiness of a new technology just gets in the blood of people as well. So, you know, that can go in both directions. I guess, um, is there another striking example historically? Um, I mean, those are the kind of moments. I think also the the country that has just previously lost the last war or feels somewhat outgunned or outmanned, has more incentive to look for revolutionary ideas. And so maybe that, to some extent, happened with the Germans in the 1930s with Flitzkrieg. And uh, they had lost the previous war. They felt they were going to have to do something special in the next one. And so they did. And uh, they're thinking about, Ground combat. It wasn't just; it, it, it was not either a linear, simplistic, one-dimensional thing. Either it was; it was not pure fadism about the tank. It was, uh, you know, repeated testing about how do you do combined arms warfare where the tank plays a bigger role than it used to, but you still have infantry, you still have artillery, a lot of the things that were paramount in World War One. And so the Germans really had uh, the imperative of getting that right because they had lost before. And they were once again thinking about a two-front war, which is sort of their scourge historically. And so I'm not in any way defending their grand strategy, but the ambition of their grand strategy, as well as the perception of vulnerability and having been defeated in previous conflict, sort of shook up their bureaucracy enough that the uh, the big thinkers carried the debt.
1: How much harder is it it to project deterrence in a time of rapid technological change? Well, you
0: start with the basics, and the one basic is that if you have Americans forward stationed in another country on its territory in significant enough numbers that we would be directly implicated in any war from day one, that tends to help, regardless of technology. And so the fact that we're in Japan and Korea, Germany, Poland, I hope the Baltic states increasingly in the future as well, and other key exposed locations in central and Eastern Europe, as well as certain parts of the broader Middle East, like Kuwait, Qatar, Bahrain, that signifies an American commitment because it's pretty hard for an adversary, regardless of the technology they employ, to think they could launch a large scale aggression against a country like that and not have the United States intervene as well. Partly because we're going to have people getting hurt or killed on day one ourselves. In any comprehensive attack, it goes after the main military formations and capabilities in the victim country. So don't forget your fundamentals. It would be the beginning of my answer. Just because technology is getting more advanced, uh, bear in mind that we have not ever really had an ally attacked when we already had large standing U.S. forces on its territory. And they don't have yeah, to be I mean, huge, right. but they yeah, have to be substantial let's and credible.
1: <laughs> Let's stay on that point, actually, for a second before we get into the tech, because um, I actually Googled this today. There's 40 American military personnel in Taiwan currently at the moment, um, which is not a lot. Uh, I think there's sort of some rumblings in Congress to do more or less with that. Um, but it really comes back to our first half of this conversation, because the, the, the deterrence is, yeah, we're going to run the sim- You know, we're going to run the model. Um, in the first place. Because I think that's the only way you really have confidence is you think you can win a war without actually having to fight it. Um, But anyway, sorry, back to you, Mike.
0: No, it's a good point. I mean, the presence on Taiwan is complicated because um, I'm not completely in favor of it. I'm certainly not all that happy that it's become public information. And It's not really combat-capable numbers of Americans, and it's far less than the number of of Americans who live on Taiwan just on a day-to-day basis for other reasons, for civilian, personal reasons. And so uh, in that sense, I'm not sure it quite reaches the threshold that I was talking about when I'm thinking about 40,000 U.S. troops in Japan, 30,000 in Korea, close to 10,000 in Poland, 30,000 in Germany. Uh, you know, etc. And usually and in the broader Middle East, a few thousand per major presence like Kuwait, Qatar, Bahrain. And, um, you know, if you only have a few trainers out in the field, that may not send the same message or constitute the same kind of deterrent. So the Taiwan case is a careful, is a one to keep a careful eye on. And you're right, some people want to just unambiguously make our presence there so clear But the Chinese would know they were picking a fight with the United States if they ever attacked Taiwan. And others would say, no, that is just a a provocation beyond the pale. And as soon as China realizes we're moving in that direction, it's going to add to their incentive to attack in the first place Um, and just say, you know, the, the old rules of deterrence be damned. This is Chinese territory. We're not going to let the Americans sort of outmaneuver us by sneaking a few boots ashore and then thinking that leaves Taiwan somehow impregnable or unattackable. Um, So there the psychology is complicated and and you're right to raise it as sort of, in a way, it's a complicated case for my argument because it's not as simple as the Japan, Korea, Germany, Poland cases.
1: So Mike, so aside from the the basics, um, what else can countries do to show that they have capabilities that should scare their adversaries in technologies that they haven't tested in decades.
0: I think that the number one thing I would counsel in response to your question is to think about the resilience of your military systems, at least as much as their lethality. I have a hard time believing anybody's going to challenge us because they don't think we have quite enough weapons or firepower to ultimately, you know, bounce the rubble the last time in an all-out fight. They're going to be more inclined to say the United States has all these cyber systems that are vulnerable, that were built with Bill Gates' software that was designed to almost fail. Uh, And then Microsoft would come fix it for you and make a nice penny in the process of fixing it until they put out the next upgrade, which you got to buy because you got to keep up with the Joneses. And, you know, the whole dependence on commercial software, where as much as I admire the innovation and ingenuity at a place like Microsoft, there was a certain element of a scam as well, in my humble opinion, that the idea of these upgrades every two years, you know, on the one hand, that's sort of the pace at which things were moving with Moore's law. And so I guess you can't really blame Microsoft for trying to give us all more and more capability. And a lot of people wanted that. On the other hand, it led to a lot of software that had a lot of a lot of bugs. And we use a lot of that same software in our military system. So, you know, the Japanese thought in 1941, the best way to beat the United States was not to launch an attack on our homeland, but to launch an attack on our Pacific fleet, put us on the mat long enough, maybe we wouldn't think it was worth the effort to rearm and come back and get them. And meanwhile, they could consolidate their positions and create bastions in the Western Pacific. So their goal was not really to defeat us in detail or in attrition warfare. It was to just give us a bloody nose or a a, a sort of a, a knock long enough that we would reassess the political desirability of getting fully into the fight. It was unsuccessful, obviously, but it was not crazy given their options. Because certainly what would have been a lot crazier is to try to just get ready to defeat us in an all out fight. Um, you know, it, it, was a bad idea, but it was not the worst possible bad idea I could think of. Whereas, um, if you are, if you're thinking now about the modern era, the main vulnerabilities we have are largely around our command control communications, computer infrastructure, and our dependence on that. And the habits we've developed in the last decades of assuming that would always be resilient and available because we fought lower tech powers. So I would tend to say the number one thing you should try to do against the United States is attack its command and control systems. And for us, the number one thing we need to do to project deterrence, answer your question, is to show and demonstrate the resilience of those same systems. And so, yes, I wanna have firepower and lethality and enough munition stockpiles to have a protracted fight if necessary. But most of all, I don't want anybody to have a theory of rapid victory against the United States, where by virtue of somehow taking down our infrastructure, whether it's command and control or the sort of, you know, railroads and ports and airfields that allow us to deploy and resupply forces, they can find an easy win, sort of a a first round knockout punch, or at least a first round knockdown punch that puts us on our back long enough that they can go achieve their desired goals and whatever theater they want to achieve them like a Chinese takeover of Taiwan before we can get back up and respond. So that's the number one concern I would have for preserving and projecting deterrence today. The Number two concern, I'll just be brief and then you can follow up if you want, is this concept of integrated deterrence of Secretary Austin, the idea that we need to be able to wage economic war. This is one aspect of integrated deterrence, but economic war as well as military campaigns against a China or a Russia, especially in situations where they're attacking a country that's not our core ally or where the the scale of the fighting has not yet reached a certain threshold. We've got to be able to respond resolutely and punitively without having to draw first blood against them or without having to disproportionately and therefore not credibly exceed the actual magnitude of the interest that's being threatened. We don't want to have to risk the destruction of New York to go save a tiny island in the East China Sea that's not even occupied by any people. You know, one of the the Senkaku Islands, for example. And so you've got to have an ability to be proportionate, which means you also need tools of economic warfare to complement those um, military campaigns.
1: Let's talk about some of the... um, cases for technologies that could have a real impact over a 20-year horizon. Which did you pick, why, and how do you think they could play out in a U.S.-China context?
0: Again, to try to um, pick off a finite piece of that very important but big question, I think that I would still stay focused on command and control, and what that means for me is fiber optic cables that run under the seabeds and satellites, as well as computer systems. And with the computer systems, I'm less worried about getting beaten to the punch on quantum computing or on artificial intelligence, because those are the big new buzzwords. And we tend to get carried away by buzzwords. And I'm more concerned about old-fashioned cyber vulnerability to hacking. And not just within our military systems, but within our, again, national infrastructure, transportation networks, communication systems, et cetera, power grids, because those things are needed to move our forces around the planet and also to keep our country safe and functional uh, while we're potentially waging war overseas. So I would focus on, first and foremost, on hardening and... Uh, you know, safeguarding cyber systems against current generation threats, and then also continuing to diversify our satellite constellations and our fiber optic cable systems and other things that are important for just run-of-the-mill communications. Because I think, again, if somebody's going to go after us, it's going to be more because they think either our politics, our fractured domestic politics, or our Vulnerable command and control systems and infrastructure will not be up to the task of quick response. And they can get away with something quickly, create a fait accompli before we muster the will and the capability to respond. So it's just going to keep reinforcing that main theme in answer to your last question.
1: Um you did give AI and big data a revolutionary grade though. Um what was uh what was behind that and what 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 sort of potential do you see
0: for certain kinds of tasks that we are at a point where people have, you know, figured out how to feed a lot of data into a machine and allow it to build its own algorithm for how to recognize militarily significant objects for example. So within the sensor world I think that AI creates new capabilities that hadn't previously existed. I'm not sure how many uh, capabilities it creates in other worlds beyond sensing. And even within sensing, there are some technologies where it's more about advanced algorithms of a traditional type, not AI. Because AI and machine learning, as you know better than I, are more about taking in all this data and letting a, a flexible computer Build its own software algorithm by constantly, you know, seeing a million pictures, half a million of which have cats in them, half a million of which don't, and trying to figure out how to accurately predict uh, which ones really are cats and which ones aren't. And you let that computer system just build its own algorithm based on all this data you're feeding in. So you don't have to write the code that says a cat ear is typically of this shape, and a cat whisker is of this length, and anything you see that has those attributes is probably a cat. You don't have to write that out. You let the machine build that algorithm for itself. So it's a fairly, as I understand, the more proper definition of artificial intelligence, just sort of letting the, the machine do some real thinking or learning. Uh, it's, it's a limited subset of what we talk about when we talk about modern computers. And so, you know, we need to be specific about what AI Means and what machine learning means. I think when we're specific, what we'll see is that within certain realms, they can do a lot, but they're not by themselves going to transform warfare altogether.
1: Mike, I want to ask you a little bit about your production function as an analyst and a writer. Yeah. how, How do you pick what to write about? And, you know, is there anything you think you do slightly differently that other folks could learn from as, uh, you know, they think about sort of charting out a personal research um, agenda that you know spans decades. At this point,
0: play to your strengths and your curiosities both, and you don't always have to have them both in equal proportion. So there have been times where I started a book project where I sort of knew the literature in the field pretty well because I had done something similar before, or felt like I had been trained in that area. Other times where I just found the questions. Really important, and I wasn't completely satisfied with what I was reading by other people, uh, or I just wanted to spend a year or two thinking about the problem. And so, give you a couple of examples. Uh, in 2014, I decided to write a book about the future of land warfare because the Pentagon and the White House were starting to say that they didn't think that land warfare needed to be as heavily prioritized in the future. And I thought that way of thinking harkened back to our post Vietnam decision to just disengaged from any and all messy counterinsurgency kind of operations, which left us ill-prepared for Iraq and Afghanistan. In other words, it it sent up warning flags. And sometimes it's fun to write when you're challenging a new emerging conventional wisdom uh, and you've got a good contrarian argument. So that can often be fun. Uh, the, The book we've been talking about that did these projections, I felt like I could use my physics and my technology background to challenge this new emerging paradigm that there was a revolution in military affairs in the works. That's going back, you know, 20 years for that book. But then in 2017, I did a book where I challenged the idea we should bring Ukraine into NATO because I thought it was likely to be counterproductive, that it would provoke Russia without protecting Ukraine. You know, I consider myself to be vindicated, but not in a way that makes me in any way, shape or form happy. I would have liked to try to help Changed the debate back in 2017. But I failed, obviously. We didn't really try to adjust our course about still keeping the idea of Ukraine joining NATO uh, um, you know, in the offing. And that, I think, contributed to the reason why Russia invaded. I'm not blaming us for the war. It's a criminal act by Putin. But to some extent, it was foreseeable. And I wanted to write a book that would try to make that case and propose a different way to secure Ukraine that I think would have worked much better uh, through a system of neutrality. And then you mentioned the Senkaku Paradox 2019. I was worried that we were seeing some people in the U.S. government say that we would fight China over the Senkaku Islands or other very small stakes. And I thought we needed a better paradigm for how to think about those kinds of potential scenarios that wouldn't rely on us drawing first blood against China over uh, an issue as trivial as who, you know, sets foot ashore on an uninhabited Island with no economic potential. And so that was a motivator for that project. And then during COVID, well, I did a big book through Yale press on what I thought overall U S grant strategy should be for the modern era. Cause I had done books on China, Russia, Korea, et cetera. So I felt like I could pull it together and make an overarching argument. But then my main COVID project was really to try to do uh, a big military history book of a type that I was always surprised hadn't been written by somebody else, sort of concise treatments with analytical and you know other perspectives brought in about America's major wars since the Civil War. I was always struck that our good mutual friend, Gerald McChrystal, knew military history better than I did, uh, as did Dave Petraeus, John Allen, a bunch of others. I always wondered why that should be true if I was this PhD who had Spent my whole life in academic pursuits and they were out there fighting and winning wars for the country. And yet they knew this stuff better than I did. I felt like political science and public policy departments and schools in our country are not adequately teaching military history. And I wanted to sort of contribute to making a small, uh, effort towards modifying or remediating that situation. And then one last example, my new project that I'm just starting is What should U.S. defense strategy and budget be for the future? And I agree with a lot of our new ideas on this front, but I think we might slightly overdo the anti-China angle. And I want to be a little bit of a moderating voice, not in a hand-hugging or peacenik way, because I think China is a problem, but in in sort of a measured way that uh, is calm and temperate and resolute altogether, not just not just resolute and not just in China's face. So on that one, I'm trying to think about where I believe our country's debate could go wrong again and trying to help steer it back to what I think is a better direction. So often I'm trying to be contrarian. Often I'm trying to use my own skill set as it's developed over the years. Um, Often I'm trying to pick a big problem that I think is looming or already serious and make a small contribution towards addressing it tends to be those kinds of motivations. Uh,
1: Mike, let's close with some book recommendations. Um, Anything on, um, you know, military and technology or some, you know, fun military history books that you came across in in researching the latest one?
0: Well, um, let let me say that just in the last couple of weeks, I've done a couple of events on future defense policy. And one of them was with Chris Rose, who wrote a very good book called The Kill Chain couple of years ago, and uh, David Achmanek at RAND, who's done some very nice studies on how to address the deterrence challenge that you mentioned with the right constellation of new technologies deployed in the Western Pacific. This book by Plaki, Plokhy, P-L-O-K-H-Y, called The Gates of Europe. It's a good history of Ukraine, and it helped me understand maybe to some extent Putin's view on that a little bit better than I had, even though Fiona Hill and others had taught me about Putin in previous writings. I enjoyed Elliot Ackerman and Jim Stavridis' book, 2034. It's a good novel about future warfare. And, you know, these novels of future war uh, can be useful. I mean, you take them for what they're worth, but they're often a good spur to imagination. And let me see if I can come up with, there's a whole slew of books that have come
1: out on China lately, as you well know. Um, how about How about some like, like some, some old books, Mike, some like from the From archives, like personally influential, yeah, not, not just like, you know, past few years.
0: General McChrystal wrote a great book called My Share of the Task about a decade ago, essentially his memoirs on his time in service. I love that book and would recommend it for understanding the evolution of modern American special operations, but also some of the wars of the Middle East from McChrystal's perspective. Bob Kagan, my colleague at Brookings, has written a couple of excellent books in the last decade and I think help explain America's role in the world for better and for worse. The 2012 book was called The World America Made. The 2018 book he wrote was called The Jungle Grows Back. And, um, and I really thought he did an excellent job with that. Uh, Fiona Hill and Cliff Gowdy wrote this book about Putin 10 years ago called Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin, which started to explain the psychological development and education of Putin and, who he was and what he was trying to achieve. A guy named Carl Bilder, who's now passed away, but wrote a great book in the 1980s called The Masks of War, Masks of War, in which he explained the culture and worldview of the different U.S. military services, especially Army, Navy, uh, and Air Force with some Marine Corps. And uh, really, I thought it was a good way to, I was just quoting it a couple of times in the last week as a way to understand how the military services in very different ways from each other, tend to attack national security challenges. Very last one, uh, an edited volume, which I don't usually sing the praises of, but my friend Corey Shockey at the American Enterprise Institute and former Secretary of Defense and General Jim Mattis wrote a book that um, is called Warriors and Citizens about six years ago, that really helped understand the military's role in modern American society and its relationship to Military uh, and civilian leadership across the country.
1: Last one for you. We end every show with a song. Anything come to mind relevant to what we got into over the past 75 minutes? Partly
0: because my head is in this military history book, uh, which is coming out in January Military History for the Modern Strategist. And because it was such a powerful book emotionally, you know, and and because I uh, love James McPherson as a writer, another great book, "Battle Cry of Freedom," was his great history of the United States uh, before and during the Civil War, including the military side, but also the broader societal and political side. The the namesake of that book, "Battle Cry of Freedom," I think sort of gets at the raw emotion and passion that helped drive the American Civil War. So. I guess that'll be my answer to your question.
1: Michael Hanlon. thanks so much for being a part of China.
0: Jordan, it was awesome. Thanks for having me on.